Let's pray. Oh God, we do give you thanks for while we were enemies, you sent your son and you loved us and he willingly came in his love. And while we were enemies, he pursued us even as we ran from him. And while we were enemies, he saved us by his death, dying for us so that we might live, so that we might no longer be enemies. We thank you, we praise you for this wonderful work that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that as we gather to consider your word, which you have given to us, that you would open our eyes to see Christ, that your spirit would stir our affections to love him, that you would make us obedient with joy from the heart, that you would soften our hearts to rejoice in Christ. You do this all for your glory. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, for the next several weeks, we are learning the songs that the the Hebrew people used to sing as they traveled up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish festivals in the temple. In this traveling psalm book of theirs, consisted of 15 psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. We've chosen the Psalms of Ascent because after spending Lent and Lamentations, these psalms illustrate the way in which Jesus has restored our fortunes through his resurrection. You see, in Lamentations, the, the city and the temple had been destroyed but the Psalms of Ascent assume that they're still standing, that there is indeed something to ascend to. In Lent and Lamentations, the mood is somber, but the Psalms of Ascent are joyful in their anticipation of worshiping the God who restores and preserves his people. On the cross, Jesus was torn down like the temple. But in his resurrection, he has given us hope and a reason to sing because there's something to ascend to. And so we go to him in our weakness and in our need and we learn to sing from the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 124 is a a new song for us to sing together in this resurrection hope. The psalm is an expression of praise for the salvation that God accomplished for the Hebrew people by fighting for them on their side, as it were. The psalm is a rather simple construction in the logic easy to follow. One scholar observes that the sequence of thought in the psalm can be summed up by the short English connecting words, if, then, but, therefore. If the Lord had not been on our side then we would have perished. But the Lord has been on our side, therefore we will praise him. It's pretty straightforward. But we must ask ourselves, 
how we can possibly sing this psalm when it is apparent that the enemies mentioned in verse two are flesh and blood opponents. This is apparent because the word that the NRSV translates as the more ambiguous enemies is actually the word men. This psalm therefore is celebrating a, a military victory against men that the Hebrews won against some some bigger and stronger nation because God chose to fight on their side. And scholars spend a lot of time attempting to reconstruct the original historical situation that produced this psalm. They try to identify when it was written and who were the enemies that were defeated by God's help. But such conjectural work is unnecessary because Based on the opening call and response in the first two verses, it's clear that this psalm, regardless of its original historical context, had been adapted for use in corporate worship. An individual would, would, would get the song going with the first verse. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, which is basically the equivalent of shouting, all together now. And then everyone would join this individual. And in verse two, by repeating the first line, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, and together they were off, and they would sing the rest of the song by memory. The significance of the fact that this psalm had been lifted from its historical context and adapted for use in corporate worship is that it became flexible, right? And it could be sung after any military victory, or even before battle, in order to inspire courage in the hearts of soldiers by reminding them that God is on their side as they enter the battlefield. Israel had no shortage of flesh and blood enemies. If the Middle East was a house, then Israel's bedroom would have been in the hallway. Nations were always passing through on their way to fight each other, and it seemed therefore, that Israel was always at war. There were the Philistines, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Seleucids, the Greeks, the Romans, and the list goes on and on and on. But with Psalm 124 adapted for corporate worship, all one had to do was simply swap out the name of the current enemy, and it was relevant for any conflict or threat. The psalm was highly adaptable. But it also proved to accurately describe Israel's history of conflict. Just as there was no shortage of flesh and blood enemies, there was also no shortage of stories about a time when God actually did fight on the side of the Hebrew people and give them victory over some opposing nation. This is perhaps most explicitly stated in the war with the Amorites retold in Joshua 10 where it's stated that as the Amorites fled before Israel, the Lord threw down large, large stones from heaven on them and they died. And there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. God was fighting on their side that day. Another explicit example is the battle with the Arameans retold in 2 Kings where the prophet Elisha and his servant wake up in the morning to discover that sometime in the night, the Arameans had secretly moved into position to ambush Israel. And Elisha's servant, as he discovers this, goes into a panic. But Elisha is not panicking. 
And we find out why when Elisha prays, O Lord, please open my servant's eyes so that he may see. And when the Lord opened the eyes of the man, he saw and behold, the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This was the Lord's army come to fight on the side of the Hebrews against the Arameans. And there are many more examples. You have only to think of the crossing of the Red Sea or of Gideon's puny army or the fall of Jericho or the retreat of the Assyrians. In each story, the Hebrews won victory because God was on their side. And with God on their side, these these powerful nations became like mere men, right? It was Yahweh, the faithfully loving God versus mere mortals, And as long as he was on their side, their victory was certain. And so they possessed a certain confidence about them that filled this psalm with boldness and a a sense of triumphalism as they sang it. But what are we to do with this psalm? The danger in this psalm would be if we were to continue treating it like an ad lib, where in all matters, political, national, personal, or racial, God is on our side. And the identity of the enemy is always changing. It's easily co-opted for some self-righteous, even unholy cause because no one would ever write themselves into the position of the enemy. We always think that we are on the side of righteousness with God backing us up. It's us versus them, whoever they are at the moment. But the problem with using the psalm in this ethno or egocentric way is that your them is their us and their them is you. Unable to agree on whom should be written into which slot, we resort to a tug of war as we try to prove that God is in fact on our side. And in order to win such a war, we must exaggerate the faults of whoever we've labeled as God's enemies in order to accentuate our own righteousness. And we must never, under any circumstances, admit any fault in ourselves. But to read the psalm in this way creates supremely self-righteous people who are unable to accurately see themselves. Their primary emotions are fear and indignation and their favorite pastime is scoffing. Our country is saturated with such people right now, both inside and outside of the church, and we don't need any more of them. The key to understanding this psalm properly so that we can can sing it wholeheartedly is to understand the true identity of God's enemies. And in order to do that, we must take a long look in the mirror. We are God's enemies. We were created as his joy. It wasn't always this way. We were created as his joy, the crown of all creation. Everything else he, he spoke into existence. But us, he, he formed with his hands. He breathed breath into our lungs in a most intimate way. But we became enemies with God when we were unsatisfied with the position he gave us. It wasn't like it was a lowly position. We were given charge over all of creation. But that still wasn't enough for us. We wanted and we still want to be gods, not creatures. 
And so we rebelled against God and we've been trying to live life apart from him since the beginning. But the only thing we've accomplished is to mess it all up. We brought a curse upon this world through our disobedience and God became our enemy. Any interactions he's had with us since have been out of restraint and grace. You know, the London Times once uh, reportedly sent an inquiry to the Catholic theologian G.K. Chesterton asking him to answer one question. What's wrong with the world? And to that one question, Chesterton sent a two-word reply. I am. It seems like a, a low view of self, right? But until we can say, I am, what's wrong with the world, we will never understand God or the gospel, and we will never love our neighbor or be able to sing this psalm properly. But if we, if we write ourselves into the, to the enemy slot of this psalm, then we can see that it is God who is a threat to us on account of our sin. His, his righteous wrath threatens to swallow us up alive, like the psalm says. Like a flood, he, he would sweep us away. We're his, his prey, caught in the snare he laid for us. In our sin, we were his enemies. In our sin, he was not for us, but against us. But despite being his enemies, God never stopped loving us. And so instead of always being opposed to us, he joined us. And the eternal son of God became a human being. And as a human being, he paid the penalty that we owed to God for our rebellion and our disobedience. Jesus, instead of us, was swallowed up by God's wrath. He was swept away like a flood. The torrents overcame him and he died like a bird caught in the snare of the fowler. And he did this, of course, on the cross. Look to the cross there you see God for us, acting on our behalf and in our place. We were his enemies, and yet he died for us. He did not wait for us to, to clean up our acts. If he did that, he never would have come. Now, as the apostle Paul writes, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Therefore, we can confidently and, and humbly sing this psalm as those who have God on our side now. We are far worse than we'd like to ever admit, but more love than we can possibly imagine. But the fact that Christ died for us while we were still enemies removes any possibility for there to be self-righteousness in our rejoicing that he's on our side. Because he's not on our side because we're special or deserving, but precisely in spite of the absence of those things, God's on our side because of grace and of love alone. That's how he dealt with us when we were his enemies and therefore we have no option but to treat our enemies, whoever they may be, the same. Right? Scoffing and indignation are a denial of the grace that has come to us in Jesus Christ. That's not how we were saved. He did not scoff at us. And so Jesus tells us that rather than condemning our enemies, we ought to pray for them instead. In fact, we ought to love them. But we'll never do that unless we recognize that while we were enemies, Jesus died for us. And even now, 
Despite our remaining sin, Jesus continues to intercede for us. His blood covers us, and we, God's one-time enemies, are now forgiven and brought into God's family by grace. And the potential for the grace of Jesus Christ to transform the way you interact with the world is tremendous. We have to look no farther than the Apostle Paul to see the potential of Jesus' transforming grace. You see, when he was a a young, self-righteous Hebrew, he viewed the world through the lens of us versus them. God was for him. He was convinced of it because of his ethnicity, his purity, his zeal and his service, his education. And because of that, he hated anyone who wasn't like him. We see in Acts that Paul then saw literally murdered people who were different from him. Stephen is is stoned to death and Paul was the one who, who authorized his murder, blessing it from a distance. But then Paul becomes a Christian and the most tremendous change comes over him. Instead of doing the stoning, Paul was now the one being stoned. Paul suffered greatly for Jesus Christ. But once he became a Christian, not once do we see him acting violently. He was grumpy, probably hard to get along with, but he never acted with violence. He preached the gospel faithfully, and he took whatever came to him with rejoicing. Sometimes he was received with joy. Sometimes he was run out of town, but he never resorted to his old ways. What happened to bring such a tremendous, almost overnight change in Paul? He encountered Jesus. And Jesus told him he was an enemy of God. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, Saul discovered that all his credentials and zeal amounted to nothing in God's sight. He was an enemy of God on account of his sin, but Jesus Christ came to him nonetheless. It was grace that transformed Paul, and it will do the same to you. You know, we often observe in our prayers of the people that we live at a time in our country when civil discourse has all but disappeared. In its place is shouting and scoffing and the exercise of power. But that's because we are all trying to preserve our own righteousness. We are insecure. And so we project anger in order to make ourselves feel better. But if you believe the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ, then he eliminates the need for scoffing or shouting. We're called to love without compromising the truth and grace without blessing sin, and to leave the rest in God's hands. The Christian has no need to fight, because in Christ we are already victors. He fights for us. So we go through this world forgiving, and blessing, and loving, and inviting people into the grace of Jesus Christ, and we willingly accept whatever comes our way, because we have nothing to fear. After all, As the psalmist reminds us at the end of this psalm, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. He made them once, he will make them again. And with his hands, he will recreate you. 
and you will intimately blow air into your lungs and you will live forever in a new heavens and a new earth where sin is no more and he is for you. He is on our side. In order to end, I'd like for us to say this psalm together as it was designed to be used in corporate worship. So if you would stand, if you are able, I'll start it and you join me when I invite you and together we will read verses two through eight together. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let God's people now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when our enemies attacked us, they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.